Well, it's my great pleasure now to introduce Victor Davis Hansen. Victor Davis Hansen is the Martin and Eileen Anderson Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution and chairs the Military History Working Group. He's a military historian, columnist, former classics professor, and scholar of ancient warfare, and has been a, a commentator on modern warfare and contemporary politics for various media outlets. He was a professor of classics at California State University, Fresno, and has been a visiting professor at Hillsdale College since 2004. He received the Eric Brindell Award for Excellence in the Opinion Journalism in 2002, and was awarded the National Humanities Medal in 2007 and the Bradley Prize in 2008. Victor is also a farmer and a critic of social trends related to farming and agrarianism, and is an author and editor of more than 24 books. His most recent book on World War II is out on the table. Please grab one before you leave today. It's a great read. The title of his talk today is Trump's Agenda One Year Later. Please join me in welcoming Victor Davis Hanson. Thank you, uh, Tom, for that nice introduction. I thought I would speak for about 25 minutes and open it up because the word Trump is synonymous with questions. Um, two th general themes that I'll tr that'll be the subtext of the next 25 minutes are everybody thought Trump was going to lose and he won because he appealed to a particular constituency which has explains a lot of his conduct in the first year. And two, a lot of the scandals, controversies that we experience daily in the media are predicated on the idea that Hillary Clinton was supposed to be uh, the elected president. Take that fact away, and you, I don't think you can explain the scandals that are unfolding, I'll explain in a minute. But just a reminder that on the eve of the election, um, Mr. Silver, the, probably the most illustrious liberal prognosticator, said that Donald Trump had a 29% chance of winning the election. She, he was roundly blasted as being uh, too pessimistic. And the New York Times that day ran polls of 17, 8, and 1% likelihood of a Trump victory. So I think we, a year in, we almost underestimate the magnitude of that victory that nobody seemed to expect and that people rude in a great manner. Uh, why did Trump win? What was the message that the 16 other candidates who were far more gifted than the 2012 field that he, that he offered? And it didn't really matter whether it was sincere or that he was a Manhattan billionaire and an unlikely populist. He, he glommed on, if I could use that term, to three or four issues that were neglected or ignored or indeed opposed by not only the, most of the candidates, but the Republican establishment. One was um, trade, and it wasn't that, I mean, it, he has in, he's offered two tariffs, but George uh, Bush slapped tariffs on steel, uh, Barack Obama did it on solar panels as well. So, so far it's not that radical, but we shouldn't equate tariffs with his trade policy. It was a larger argument that Trump was making. He was saying that the coastal cultures on the east and west side of the United States had done very well under a globalized, transnational, economic, social, cultural paradigm. And there were people in the middle, whether they lived in Bakersfield 
or whether they lived in Lansing, Michigan, or whether they lived somewhere in northern Ohio who did not do well. In other words, they did not understand a knowledge-based economy, or they were not computer literate, or they were not attuned to international trade, and yet they had a legitimate expectation that they should be doing well when everybody else was. And they looked at certain indicators and said, we're doing very well in energy, the stock market is doing very well, but if you drive through those towns in Indiana, Ohio, Michigan, parts of Wisconsin, it, it, they're doing very poorly. And Trump's argument was that they were not clingers, they were not irredeemables, they were not deplorables. That through no follow, people in national review said they should just get in their pickups and go where the money is. Very easy to say if you lived in New York and you travel around very hard if you're a third generation person living with your mother in a rural Michigan town. And so he made an argument that I'm going to renegotiate trade that'll be fairer. And the second issue grew out of that, and that is that we have 11, somewhere to 11 to 15 million people here on lawfully, and the State Department of Commerce under the Bush and Clinton administrations had shown that that helped to depress wages, entry-level wages. It made sense. I remember as a youth growing up that Cesar Chavez's biggest program was sending people down to the border to turn away illegal immigrants and opposing uh, La Raza. Chavez hated the idea of La Raza. In other words, he wanted a closed border where there were only a finite number of entry-level workers so he had some leverage over employers. It made sense. And that was, if you go back and look at the nomenclature, the rhetoric, the vocabulary of Jimmy Carter and Bill Clinton, Chuck Schumer, even Nancy Pelosi, it was the term illegal alien and it was antithetical to efforts to unionize entry-level workers. It was antithetical to the idea that entitlements would be plentiful enough for the poor of America. And it was antithetical to the idea that you could assimilate, intermarry, and integrate. The dialogue changed radically, although not the numbers, they were already there, but in about 2008 with the victory of Obama. Trump came along and said, I'm going to close the border and make immigration legal, measured, meritocratic and diverse. I'm taking the words right out of Steve Miller's mouth. Diverse, 55% of all immigration, legal and illegal, comes from Mexico or Latin America. It's not diverse. Trump said, it's not racist to say that we want diverse immigration because when people come in limited numbers and they're meritocratic and they come legally, then they assimilate and assimilation is what we want. We don't want tribal block voting. Your name is Giuliani or your name is Cuomo, we don't want to predict how you're going to vote based on your Italian-American affiliation. And indeed, a lot of people, until the great rush in illegal immigration in the 1990s, had said that the Mexican-American paradigm was resembling 19th century or early 20th century Italian-American. Both uh, places of origin were poor, they were Catholic, and yet after two or three generations they had to obtain parity. I don't think that would have happened if a half a million people were coming from Sicily every year illegally and uh, in a non-meritocratic, non-diverse way. That was the second argument, and that resonated, and that was so something that the elites on the coast had no idea. Um, I talked to somebody from Massachusetts who got very angry about this argument, and I asked him what were the number of people who were illegally in Massachusetts from a different country, it's 1% of the population. 
There are four million people right now in California out of four. It's 10%, and it's probably much higher. So that argument uh, resonated in different ways in different places. The third thing that Trump sort of ran on was we're not going to have political correctness anymore. In other words, language is going to reflect reality. So, and he did it in a very crude fashion. Islamic terrorism, illegal alien. These are all descriptive terms that everybody had used on both parties, but in the Obama regnum of eight years, we'd, we'd accepted euphemisms, overseas contingency operations, <laughs> workplace, workplace violence uh, for t terrorism. And illegal alien had gone from illegal alien to illegal immigrant to undocumented immigrant, and then finally just to immigrant, and now migrant, as if they're going both ways, and we don't want to prejudice a person by saying X or M. And so Trump said, that doesn't mirror reality. And he did it in a very brutal way. The third thing was very, a fourth thing was very subtle. And it was a demographic political argument. And the conventional wisdom said that Obama had blown up the paradigm prematurely. Everybody understood that the white so-called population was shrinking, but Obama made the argument that it's shrinking faster than everybody thinks, and I'm going to run on a new demography. And he got, indeed, record turnout of the African-American vote, maybe of those who voted 96% in unprecedented fashion, supposedly 70 to 72% of the Hispanic vote, which also registered in unprecedented fashion, and, and to a lesser extent, the Asian vote. That was the paradigm of the future, and it made a, the Democratic Party take a sharp turn. Obama should have understood something that that might not have been a wise electoral strategy, because in this process, he lost the House, he lost the Senate, he will lose the Supreme Court for a generation, and he lost uh, the majorities in uh, about two-thirds of the legislature legislatures and the, the governorships. He was a disaster for the Democratic Party, and he left them a legacy of identity politics. The problem with it is Trump basically, I know that he didn't, maybe didn't describe this analytically, but what he was saying was identity politics has some problems. First of all, it assumes that a person will always vote according to their outward appearance and that assimilation, integration, and intermarriage are not taking place. They're retarded, and they're slowed down when we have huge numbers that are not diverse, but they're still going on, and you cannot expect a person to always vote according to their uh, color of their skin. And that was very important, you see, because Obama had to, to champion identity politics. On the upside, there was a downside. As one person said to me in Delano, he had a child, he called me up and wanted to know if I would recommend him for college. He had a BA from Fresno State, a white male, straight A average, studied Greek and Latin, and he wanted to know what his chances were to getting Stanford or Berkeley. I said zero. <laughs> I'm not lying, I was being empirical. There's zero, because I recommended 52 people over 22 years, and I think two white males got in all with equal records. So what Trump was saying is that to champion identity politics is not in isolation. Then he added a little wrinkle to that argument, and he said, the Electoral College may not matter in the way people think. You're never going to turn California red again. You're never going to turn Texas in the immediate future blue, maybe not even Arizona blue, maybe Colorado, Nevada, but where the election is going to be decided is in Florida, Wisconsin, North Carolina, Michigan, Pennsylvania, maybe Minnesota, Indiana. 
and identity politics, the downside of it is much greater than the upside. There's not the numbers there to flip those states, say, of Hispanic immigrants, but there is a lot of resentment among uh, former Reagan Democrat, Tea Party, working class whites, whatever term we want to use. These are the, what Hillary called the deplorables. And so he thought he could flip those states, and that was just a completely absurd. Nobody thought you could do that. And he proved that to be true. A lot of what he said then, since then, makes sense if that was his electoral strategy and those are the issues he ran on. So of all these controversies he's courted, we keep thinking, well, when will his base abandon him, this 40 or 42 percent of the voting electorate? And the, the answer is probably not. Never. They, they're delighted with what he did. He's doing exactly what he said. The, the deeper question is that people who either voted for him reluctantly or voted against him are looking at this first year. We wouldn't have this conversation right now if he had done what the never Trumpers told us he would do. And I was looking over this week at some of the prognostations. We were told that he probably would uh, nominate his sister, a liberal, to the Supreme Court. He didn't do that. We were, we were told uh, two prominent never Trumpers predicted that he would weaponize the FBI and the DOJ. Well, they were weaponized, but Trump didn't do it. They were weaponized in the previous administration. We were told by Paul Krugman that the stock market were collapsed. Prominent economists said that given today's demography, automation, globalization, you cannot grow an economy in the United States at 3% anymore. That's a fossilized idea, and it was not legitimate to criticize Obama for not achieving that annualized rate. Another person said, in a peacetime economy, unemployment cannot dip below 4%. Another economist says, you cannot bring American factories and industry back to the Ohio River Valley on promises of making America great. What they didn't say, maybe you can bring them back if you promise to deregulation, deregulate slash the corporate tax rate, uh, really emphasize energy production and get electricity rates at about 40% of what they are in the Ruhr Valley. And that's an enticement which I think he's going to pull off. So for the first year, he's surprised his critics and he's mostly delighted his report, uh, supporters. Abroad, when we look at the foreign policy, what I think sums it up the best is it's a restoration of deterrence. That's a fancy Latin word, de terio, to terrify somebody from doing something. It reminds me of uh, Lord Salisbury said in the 17th century, we hang horse thieves in Britain not because they stole horses, but so other people won't do it. And what we're seeing is that we were told that all of a sudden, in 2016, apparently North Korea claims they had a ballistic missile and they could miniaturize a weapon and put it in the air and, and take out Portland. So we want to stop that. We were told by Susan Rice two months ago, we have to live with it. Trump says we're going to deter them from doing that, whether that's Chinese pressure or whether that's opening a nuclear option with South Korea or even Taiwan or maybe especially Japan or maybe it's going to uh, China and pressing them on the Spratly Islands or on trade, but there's an effort to tell North Korea that you, that's not acceptable. The restoration of deterrence after appeasement is very dangerous. So now we have to go back and find a way to remind the, Iran the Iranians that it's not normal procedure to haze U.S. ships in the Persian Gulf. Fifty incidents 
under the prior administration. It's not American policy to deliver $400 million in the dead of night to get back hostages. It's not American policy to do that. It's not American policy to agree that we won't have SNAP inspections of nuclear facilities that are in violation of proliferation agreement. That's dangerous to do that. It's dangerous to go back with Vladimir Putin and say, there is no such thing as reset. Reset was a crazy idea. And Mitt Romney was right, you are an existential threat. And Barack Obama was wrong when he had a hot, hot mic and claimed he'd be flexible on missile defense. And we're going to go put the missiles back in Eastern Europe. And we're going to teach you not to do things that are not in your interest. So what we're trying to tell the Venezuelans that are bankrupt with the small powers of Cuba or North Korea or Iran or China or Russia, we don't want you to do something stupid under the mistaken impression that either we are weak or we won't do something. And therefore, we're trying to establish a peaceful coexistence. I saw, we had a meeting not long ago where a scholar said, well, I'm very worried about Barack Obama, um, Donald Trump, excuse me, because he said rocket man and my button's bigger than yours. And I, it sounded like a believable exegesis, but I thought to myself, has there ever been a war that started over a provocative statement? If anybody can think of one, please tell me, because I examined about 200 and I couldn't find one. I can find a lot of wars that started over non-provocative statements, in other words, assurances that you would not do anything, such as uh, the British taking a minesweeper out of the Falklands and uh, trying to use the word Malvinas in 1981 and 2, or Dean Acheson saying that South Korea was not under the sphere of American defensive responsibilities in 1950 or April Glassby assuring Saddam Hussein that it was not the interest of the Bush administration to interfere in border disputes between two Arab countries. That is what's dangerous. Setting a red line and not enforcing it. Setting a step over line, not enforcing it. Setting five deadlines with Iran, not enforcing it. And so this foreign policy that's being conducted by Tillerson and Mattis and McMaster and Haley Pompeo has one common denominator. We're trying to reapprise the world and try to tell them that this was an aberration the last eight years, and you don't do certain things because we are strong. And remember, the rules of deterrence, a strong power incurs a special contempt when everybody knows it is stronger than the aggressor, but it, for some psychological or social or political reason, it's unwilling to use that strength. When Hitler went into France, he, he went in with an army three million that faced an army of Britain, France, the low countries of four million. He went in with a tank that was demonstrably inferior to what uh, the Allies had. This is in 1940. Why did he do that? Because he said, I saw these people at Munich and they are contemptible, meaning they have more force than I do. And if I had the force they did, I would do a lot of stuff. But they have more force than I do and they're afraid to use it, so I have a psychological contempt for them. And that's a very dangerous situation that was developing. And so the first year, economically and on foreign policy, whether we look at uh, the reestablishment of a relationship with Israel, the moving of the, of the embassy to Jerusalem, everybody said there were going to be riots, a third intifada. Not much happened. Why didn't much happen? Because the Middle East is not the same as it was six years ago, eight years ago. We are the, going to be the world's largest oil producer next year. We're already the second this year. We don't need Middle Eastern oil. We can't be blackmailed 
by Saudi Arabia or Kuwait. The Gulf monarchies, Jordan, Egypt, they're much more terrified of a potential nuclear Iran than they are an actual nuclear Israel. People are saying privately about the Palestinians, you know, this happened in 1947, 48. That's just about the time Prussia ceased to exist and 13 million Germans walked back into Germany and nobody's calling them refugees. Nobody's blowing them up to say that my ancestral state in East Prussia must be given back to me. The world moves on. It's a cruel thing to say, but the Palestinians cannot be perpetual refugees for the rest of the time. It's time to get their state and cut a deal with Israel. And there hasn't been a pushback. So a lot of the foreign policy was reappraising the world. This is the way it really is. The climate accord in Paris, it, it's just a joke. It's not a treaty. It's not enforceable. And if it were enforceable, the United States has already met almost all of its obligations, much more so than European countries because of natural gas conversion from coal plants. So it's a re-establishment of reality, and it's done in a very crude and in-your-face manner, which I think really bothers a lot of countries. John Kerry was supposedly, according to the Jerusalem Post, uh, conferring in London with a Palestinian official, and he said, don't worry, hold out, don't give in to Trump, he won't even be here a year from now. So you can see that level of pushback in the deep state. I want to then close with what's the prognosis of the Trump presidency, given that we have two rival or parallel investigations. We have the Mueller investigation, seeking, I don't think it's seeking collusion anymore because that was the original mandate. And I don't think anybody believes there's a serious writ of, of collusion. It's more likely to be something like uh, Paul Manafort or Mike Flynn, a false statement under oath. And even those statements, I think, may be thrown out of court when they were produced by FISA warrant, court orders, surveillance that was predicated on a false dossier of poison tree, fruit, so to speak. And the other investigation of the House Intelligence, actually four House committees. So one way to think about all of these things, as I said at the beginning, is remember that Hillary Clinton should have won the election. And that will answer all of your queries and your wonderments and your bewilderment about what happened to the FBI and the DOJ. Give me, I'll give you two or three examples. Why in the world would Andrew McCabe, the deputy FBI director, whose wife was running for office in Virginia and who was a recipient of $450,000 from a Clinton-connected PAC under Terry McAuliffe, received $450,000 for her failed campaign, and three months later, the deputy director, her husband, would be investigating Hillary Clinton email scandals and did not recuse herself. Why would he do such a stupid thing? Well, the answer was it wasn't stupid at all. It was a wise career move if Hillary Clinton was going to be president. Why would Ms. Page and Strzok, why would they communicate over FBI-owned uh, devices? And all during this period of their affair, both at, before and, the, before and right, right up to the election, why would they say certain things that could be traced? Or why would they say Trump is an idiot or he's dangerous? And they answered that question themselves. They, he said, as Ms. Page said to Mr. Strzok, don't go loaded for bear. She probably will win. Meaning, we can say whatever we want as long as we have a party line because we'll be rewarded afterwards. Why would Bruce Orr, the deputy DOJ in the DOJ's office, deputy attorney general, why 
would he meet with a Clinton-funded operative, Glenn Simpson and the Fusion GPS group, during the campaign, who were using material paid for by Hillary Clinton that probably brought in fraudulent uh, Russian sources. Why would the DOJ under Obama even meet, the assistant DOJ meet with these people? And why would he be so stupid to have his wife be employed by a Clinton-funded project to find dirt on candidate Trump? That doesn't make any sense. It makes every sense if you think Hillary Clinton has a 78% chance of winning, and given the Clinton mentality, that which you know very well, that after the election she will not look at that as a breach of protocol or, or ethics, but a demonstrable sign of fealty and loyalty to be rewarded commiserately. And all of these things that we've watched uh, and all of this scandal are explicable that people did things, James Comey, why did James Comey have a press conference and another press conference and another press conference, flipping and flopping like a fish on a quay? Why did he change the language of his uh, report and so it would not in, uh, in, involve legal endangerment of Hillary Clinton? Why would he testify under oath during the election that Hillary Clinton uh, why would he testify and give statements that he interviewed Hillary Clinton first and wrote his report second when that was demonstrably false? And the answer is Hillary Clinton was going to be president of the United States, and James Comey would be seen as somebody who stood up and supported Hillary Clinton in her finest hour. And so I think we have the long idea about these scandals. They're not so much... Uh, aberrant behavior, they're predictable behavior by people in the administrative straight that are careerist and were sure that Hillary Clinton was going to be president and that she under, understood very well the proven Clinton uh, modus operandi and they wanted career incentives and rewards for doing what they did. And then to their, they did everything right according to deep state rules except one thing, they bet on the wrong horse. Finally, what is the, uh, the political viability of Trump? And uh, right now, Fox had him yesterday at 42. I think Rasmussen is 44, 45. Uh, he's about two points behind what Barack Obama was at this point in his presidency. And there's a lot of known things we know that are unknown. And I'd like to finish with two or three of them and open it up for questions. We know that uh, the polls that have anything to do with Trump are not necessarily accurate. Because when you, any of you in this audience say that you voted for Trump, you look out of both sides of your eye to see who's listening. <laughs> it's, as Aristotle said, it's simply not done. And so people are careful and guarded. Or you'll say something like, well, what else was I supposed to do? Or I really didn't want to do it. Or when somebody calls you on the phone and you're in a private room and all you have to say, yes, I will vote for Trump, you can't do that. And there's about 3 or 4% it proved in the electorate that that was true of. So when we see 42, it may be that that still holds. We don't know. It might be 46 or 47. People like you and I, we get bothered by these tweets or these outrageous campaign rallies or uh, vocabulary. And we think this is really hurting him. But we really don't know whether that's central to the 40% that are sticking by him through thick and thin, and we don't even know ourselves. We don't know. As my wife said to me once, 
come in here. She didn't like Donald Trump, wasn't going to vote for him. She said, he just deported Jorge Ramos from that press conference. I'm voting for him. And I thought, why? And, well, she said, Jorge Ramos does what he always does. He fled Mexico because the cartels were off. He came here. He immediately started trashing the United States. He crashed the press conference. He cut in front of everybody. He grabbed the mic, and he wanted to be addressed first because he was Jorge Ramos. And he said, get out of here. And, and she said, nobody would ever do that. I'm voting for him. And so her point was that there's a lot of independents that don't like his style, but they like the uh, irritation and anger that that style causes in particular people. And Donald Trump is like chemotherapy, and they believe that the host, <laughs> we're the host, the United States, and there was a cancer of the administrative state, and the way that you get rid of the cancer is not with Jeb Bush or John McCain bromides, that you get a foreign agent that's toxic, and it kills the cancer one day before it kills the host. And that's what, and they believe that. And although they don't like what Trump does, they have a smile on their face with the reaction that they see with CNN or Jim Acosta. Or they, they like what that's doing. That's not a majority, though. He still hasn't got a majority of people, even though they're doing quite well. And so, to finish, the old wisdom that it's the economy, stupid, that Clinton taught us, it kept him alive during the, uh, the uh, Monica scandals when he had 3% economic growth. I don't think it quite... Uh, applies fully to Trump. Now, fourth quarter revisions, maybe 3.8 or 3.9, we're waiting to see that, but 3 .0, 3.0, 3.1, 3.1, 3.0, 3.9, uh, we're getting close to a trajectory that might be 4%. What I'm saying is that Trump will have a tough time when he has 90% negative press conference. He's dueling with the Mueller investigation. He's dueling with uh, the Democratic resistance, they call themselves the resistance, and he's, dealing, he's dueling with the demons within himself, that he's capable at any time of saying anything to anyone. And so to overcome all of that, I think he's going to need 4 or 5% GDP, a, a strong uh, stock market, and it's really a great experiment because we've never really had in our lifetime a hard left administration for eight years, a neo-socialist administration like the Obama administration, followed by what we didn't expect, but what is turning out to be a hard-right conservative administration. So we at the Hoover believe in free markets, deregulation, tax cuts, tax simplification, promotion of uh, energy production, and a climate in which we don't say, you, don't you didn't build that, it's not the time to profit, you've made enough money but rather to encourage business people, not for trickle-down, but because we feel that there's certain entrepreneurial animal spirits when unleashed, everything will be good for most people. And we're going to see that experiment fail or succeed like we've never expected in our lifetime. Thank you very much. For more podcasts from the Hoover Institution, please visit hoover.org or Hoover's channels on iTunes, iTunes U, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. I'm Chris Dower for the Hoover Institution. Thanks for listening.